Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. It is good to see you here this morning. We're going to welcome our guests with us and friends and family here at Grace Point Church. Also, uh, good to have Paul and Diana Mayhew back from Indo- or from China. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, I was thinking of my other missionary friend who's going to Indonesia next week, but uh, Paul and Diana ministered in, in the Macau and Hong Kong, got to spend time with their son and daughter-in-law and their family in the Philippines. So it's good to have Paul and Diana back, and it's good to have each one of you here today. We are thankful for you here this morning. Well, I have an apology to make for those of you who learn. Your learning style is by taking notes. You'll notice as you furiously page through your bulletin, there is no sermon insert. We will still have a sermon, but uh, <laughs> I was ill this week. I could have said my dog ate the sermon, and that would be uh, come, come close to that, but I didn't get a bulletin insert done. I... Uh, you know, instead of just telling you I had the cold or a sinus infection, I wish I could tell you I had a designer disease like scurvy. You know, arg, that's a kind of a cool disease, but uh, I didn't. So anyway, if you're looking for an outline, it's not in there. But it's very easy uh, in this passage that Dave read for us this morning. Three things you have to know. And if you have a piece of paper, remember, we only ask you to bring your Bible, a pen, and your brains uh, to Grace Point Church. But if you have a piece of paper, you can write out the outline very quickly. The walk the warning, and the wisdom. Got it? The walk, the warning, and the wisdom out of this passage out of the book of Ephesians. And so that's where we will be today. And uh, there will be a little bit more to it than those three words, and we will continue on with that. Uh, Think about newborn infants. Do newborn infants have an accent? Have you ever thought about that? I was reading a study that was done recently in Europe and a research project which compared the cries and the expressions of newborns in Germany and those of newborns in France. And the research involved extensive and precise recordings in maternity wards of infants still swaddled, crying, and wailing. Uh, the, the head lead researcher was Dr. Kathleen Wormke. She's the director of Center for Pre-Speech Development and Developmental Disorders at the University of Würzburg in Germany. She digitally graphed the pitch and cadence of babies' cries in the nursery and then painstakingly compared them baby for baby, uh, those cries along ethnic lines, you know, the German babies and the French babies. And uh, what the researchers discovered, it really stunned them that babies cry with an accent, And in France, babies consistently inflect from a low to a high pitch when they cry. But in Germany, the opposite is true, from a high pitch to a low pitch. And so the uh, revolutionary element in this discovery is that the intonational pattern uh, exactly mimics the melody of the mother. The melody of the mother, or more precisely, the patterns of speech characteristics of the mother's national language. This womb-bound baby hears this and copies it at birth. Uh, You know, when you think about it, it makes sense because the baby, when it's in the mother's womb, is eavesdropping for nine months. You know, it puts its ear, as one writer said, it puts its ear to the rail of her bones and listens to the train of her sorrow and gladness coming for miles. The child emerges from its mother's womb with her voice ringing in its ears, her music echoing in its own bones, and as a result, the baby's first instinct is to sing the mother's song. Well, I can attest to that because my mother uh, is uh, from the south, 
originally. They moved through Kentucky, Texas, Missouri, and she had a very soft, uh, slight southern accent. So when I was born, I came out talking about you all, or y'all, y'all. And so that was, I'm pretty sure that's what happened to me. But uh, this got me to wondering about that, that whole example of babies uh, echoing the intonations of their mother. Uh, I was thinking, what song do we overhear from heaven that we try to sing on earth? What are the words that are reflective in us and the tonal patterns in our lives that are reflective of our Father in heaven, the one that gives believers new birth through the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, we may sing this song rather poorly, squalling and squawking, but we sing it instinctively. It's in our bones, if you will. Remember, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are new creatures in Christ. We call it being born again. And so what is that fabric and that tone that comes out of us? What's the voice that's in our hearts that uh, the world needs to hear? It may be muffled in our lives, and every human can copy it, in a sense, in a mangled form. Uh, But what is the believer's language? And we come today to a very critical part of this letter to the church at Ephesus. And it has something to do with love, even though in a cursory reading of this passage, it doesn't sound very love-like. And yet in this passage, we're told to walk in love or have a lifestyle of love. You know, love, when you read God's word from beginning to end, God's love is the music of heaven. It really is his grace, his mercy, and his love for his creation. And then when we love and we express that, no matter how awkwardly we do it, because we are imperfect individuals, we hum, excuse me, the anthem that is sung perfectly from on high every day, everywhere in heaven, if you can imagine that. And so today we come back to the letter of Ephesians. We've been out of it. If you've not been with us, if you're new here, we've been studying through this letter to the church at Ephesus. And just to give you a a brief summary of it, you can very easily uh, summarize the the, the letter to Ephesians because Paul's pattern is in chapters 1 through 3, he gives us the Christian our position in Christ. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus. And a saint, of course, is one who is saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, a saint simply means one set apart unto a purpose And we are set apart as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a letter written to believers in Jesus Christ. And so he talks in these first three chapters about our position, and then he applies these positional truths that we've gone through in chapters 4, 5, and 6. This is the application of the wealth we have. We have a wealth, and and, and then we have a walk. In fact, Paul uses that term, that metaphor of walking as a lifestyle as going through life as a a determined practice. And so we have this wealth in chapters 1 through 3, and then we walk or we apply it. He applies it in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So we're in the middle of this application. Uh, In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And clear down through verse 16, he implores us, he applies the truth that we are to be unified, which makes sense. If we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, if we believe in the same Jesus, believe in the same Savior, and we are together in what is called the church, then we should be unified and rally around those fundamentals of the faith. And so he says, walk in unity. 
And then chapter 4, verses 17, uh, through the end of chapter 4, we are to walk in purity or walk in holiness, and he goes on to apply that. And then today we're going to see that he tells us to walk in love as he continues to talk about this lifestyle that's going on. So to help us with the context, I had Dave start reading in chapter 4, verse 30, where we we had already covered this, but I know it's been almost, well, it's been a month ago that we were here. So let me just review this very quickly. In verse 30 of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This points to the personhood of the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is not a ghost or a spirit that floats around, but it's a person of the Trinity. Remember, we are Trinitarian. That's a fundamental of the Christian faith as we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three persons of one entity, one unity, the Trinity, God in heaven. And so it tells us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. When you think in your own life, when you've had times of grieving over sorrow that someone else has either hurt you, someone else is in sin, someone else has problems, there is grieving, isn't there, when there's loss. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit, and he warns us. In fact, there are four commands relating the believer to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Grieve not the Holy Spirit, we find here. Uh, Walk by the Spirit. Uh, Do not quench the Spirit and pray by the Spirit. And so those four commands relate us to the third person of the Trinity. And so he tells us, so do not grieve this Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, the idea of being sealed is an amazing positional truth. Page back to chapter 1. We have heard this before. Uh, Look at chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, where Paul is laying out these positional truths, who we really are in Christ, not who the world tells us we are, but who Jesus tells us we are. Verse 13, in him, speaking of Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This is better than gold. The Holy Spirit indwells us at the moment of salvation. We are sealed in him. We are like in a fortress or a vault, and it is tightly sealed. Nothing is going to remove us from the salvation provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he tells us and reminds us in verse 30. And then in this context, he talks about our attitudes which lead to action. Remember, our attitudes usually come out in some kind of action in our life. In verses 30 through 32, he lists in verse 31 six unpleasant attitudes and actions. The first one there in verse 30 says, let all bitterness, let all bitterness. This is basically a sour speech, a sour spirit. Uh, that is reflected in our speech. John R. W. Stott, the British pastor and theologian, writes that little is sadder in elderly people than a negative and cynical outlook on life. And then Armitage Robinson, quoting Aristotle, the philosopher, defines this word bitterness as an embittered and resentful spirit which refuses to be reconciled. Elsewhere, Paul tells us, do not let a root of bitterness take root in our lives. It is death to us. The second word is wrath, which denotes a passionate rage, which grows out of anger, which is the third word, uh, more settled and sullen hostility. Uh, If you've ever heard somebody call someone else an ogre, 
That's basically the Greek word that's translated here as anger. And it comes out of their life as an ogre, you know. They're angry. And then fourth is clamor. It describes people who get excited, raising their voices in a quarrel, start shouting, even screaming at each other. And uh, that sounds like uh, Sunday talk shows, doesn't it? The political guys arguing back and forth and yelling. That's clamor. The fifth one is slander, speaking evil of others, especially behind their backs, and so defaming and even destroying their reputation. The Greek word that's behind that translation is the word blasphema, which we get blasphemy from. And we know we can blaspheme God and we can blaspheme other people if we're not careful. And then the sixth one is malice or ill will. And it's probably this idea of plotting evil against people. It's an active uh, act to plot evil. And it may be inclusive of the previous five vices, namely silently harboring grudges, uh, indignant outbursts, seething rage, public quarrel, and slanderous taunts. Uh, As one writer said, there is no place in the Christian's life for these horrid things. They have to be totally rejected. And that is the warning here for us. And then in verse 32a, he contrasts that with three pleasant attitudes and actions. Notice verse 32a. Be kind to one another. That's the first one. The word is krestos in Greek. And that is an obvious assonance or a rhythm or a rhyme with the word for Christ, which is Christos. And this idea that we are to be kind as Jesus Christ is kind. Tender-hearted there is compassionate and forgiving one another is literally acting in grace. Remember, grace is unmerited favor. And oftentimes, when we forgive someone, we, don't, uh, we have to come to the point of giving them grace, unmerited favor towards one another because God in Christ has acted in grace towards us. How do we do this? At the end of verse 32, the purpose of this is just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. That is an amazing phrase. Just that one phrase, if we could get a grasp on that, just as God in Christ has forgiven you and me, it's an amazing thing because I know who I was and who I am and that God in Christ has forgiven me. What a wonderful attitude. And then chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we come to the walk, the walk. And we are to remember who we are, remember who we are. I was reading that on May 28, 1972, the Duke of Windsor, if you remember his story, he was the uncrowned King Edward VIII. He died in Paris. Remember, he's the one who abdicated the throne to marry the American divorcee. And on that same evening of 1972, a television program recounted the main events of his life. And viewers watched film footage of what, uh, in, in which the Duke answered Questions about his upbringing, his childhood, his brief reign, and his eventual abdication from the throne of Great Britain. When he was recalling his boyhood as the Prince of Wales, he said, My father, who was King George V, was a strict disciplinarian. Sometimes when I had done something wrong, the the Duke of Windsor said, he would admonish me by saying, quote, My dear boy, you must always remember who you are, the son of a king. It is my conviction that our Heavenly Father says this to us every day. My dear child, you must always remember who you are. Whether you're at school, whether you're at the workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home, in the grocery store, remember 
who you are. We need to constantly remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Uh, it's not about not is not so much about what we do as it's, uh, it's about a, who we are, who we are in Christ. To say it another way, what we do flows out of who we are. When we recognize who we are, then that changes what we do. And it's not hard to figure out what we're supposed to do. In verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Why? Because as beloved children. There's this idea. That word imitate uh, comes from a Greek word, which we get our word mimic from. And it means to act like. It means to act like the Father. In this fifth chapter of Ephesians, that is probably one of the most startling admonitions we find in the Bible. Because those words, be imitators of God, it is the only place in Scripture that we find this phrase. And it makes them so startling, they put a standard beyond which there is no other. There is no other standard than that. William Barclay, a, a, a classic commentator, calls this phrase the highest standard in the world. Alexander McLaren, another preacher and commentator from another day, calls it the sum of all duty. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says this is Paul's supreme argument, the highest level of all in doctrine and in practice, the ultimate ideal. How are we to imitate God? How are we to imitate him? By verse 32, forgiveness, and verse 2, and love. In verse 2 it says, and, which can be translated, that is, how do we do this? Walk in love. So remember that you are God's child. Here it says, as beloved children. If we get that through our heads, that we are accepted in the beloved. We are beloved children. He delights in his children because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then secondly, we are greatly loved by God. We are greatly loved by God. In verse 2, it tells us there, and, just, uh, and walk in love, that's the command, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, a fragrant aroma. You know, there's nothing worse than a beautiful flower that doesn't have an aroma. Don and I were at a restaurant the other night, and they had a little vase of flowers on the table, carnations, very pretty ones, and... Uh, and and Don tried to see if they had any aroma, and they didn't have any aroma. And a flower is supposed to have aroma, isn't it? You know, for the believer in Jesus Christ, we can put on all the Sunday clothes, and we can put out the, the externals, and yet if there's not the aroma of Christ in our lives, we miss out on something, and the world misses out on what Christ is like. Second Corinthians, Paul writes in ch chapter 2, verse 14, But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ, now listen to this, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Have you ever thought about that? You are the sweet aroma that some people will ever have of the Lord Jesus Christ in your day-to-day -day dealings, wherever that may be. So the walk, verses 1 and 2, remember who you are. Secondly, the warning, saints, avoid these three major categories in verses 3 through 4. Listen as I read 3 and 4. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. The three categories, verse 3a, is immoral conduct. 
the idea here is immoral conduct, what he's admonishing to avoid, immorality. The underlying Greek word is porneia, which we get our word pornography from in the English. But it is a broad word that covers all expressions and all forms of sexual misconduct. One writer says it refers to all that works against the lifelong union of a man and woman in marriage. That is the key here, to understand that sex is a gift. It is a beautiful thing in the right context as God has designed it for. That impurity refers to something that is filthy inside and out. It has the idea of a pus coming out of a wound or the idea of a decaying corpse That is the picture here, and that's an apt description of what happens in a society that gives itself over to immorality. The Greeks and Romans had done this. Remember the context of the church at Ephesus. They were in this city, this major crossroads in the Roman Empire, where the worship at the temple Diana was filled full of prostitutes and immorality. It was a major center of pagan worship, and that's what these people that Paul is writing to had come out of that system to know Jesus Christ. They had been freed from that bondage. They'd been rescued. And many of us have been rescued, or at least rescued from the potential of bondage to the horror of immorality that we see here. Because a society that gives itself over like the Greeks and Romans and the United States has done, this society is like a rotting corpse. And we live in that. We are affected by that, and we need to be aware of that. So it goes from genuine love, we've seen in verse 1, down to this perverted lust is what he's talking about. So beware of immoral conduct. The second one of these categories is greed. Notice again in verse, or greed there in verse 3. And this refers primarily, when we think about it, to the love of money, the insatiable desire to have more and more. It was one of the Rockefellers, John D., I think, was asked, how much more money do you need? And he said, just one more quarter, you know, just a little bit more. And that's the idea of greed here. But it goes even deeper than just finances. It's asking for all of this stuff. Greed about immorality and purity means something like J.B. Phillips' translation, the itch to get your hands on what belongs to other people. That's the idea here. And it's not, not just about money, as I said. Greed pushes God out of your life. And that's why in verse 5, when we get to it, you'll see that it's called idolatry. When you think about immoral conduct, when you think about pornography, sexual sin, immorality, impurity, greed, it is an idol. And if that idol's in your life, that is what you are worshiping over the God of the universe. And that's what the Apostle Paul is warning these believers about. It shouldn't even be named among us. And sadly, there's there's two major ministries in this country whose leadership is under fire now because of immoral conduct. It's horrendous. It's horrific. It's not relegated just to the Roman Catholic Church. Evangelicalism is being shot through with it because our culture is bleeding in and we are finding things to do which are unacceptable to God but acceptable to our society. And that is what we're having. The third uh, major category is obscene speech. Obscene speech. Look at verse 4 again. And there must be no filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, which are not fitting rather than the giving of thanks. Filthy talk uh, refers to that which is evil, ugly, immodest, dirty. It covers obscene talk, taking God's name in vain, speech that is coarse, crude, and unclean. We might call this treasonous speech because it describes phrases that should never come out of the mouth of a Christian. 
I've told you before that uh, when I got saved, I worked in the woods in Montana. I was a heavy equipment operator. And like a typical logger, I had a vocabulary. It was limited, but it was a vocabulary, and it was not pleasing to God. When I was saved, when I believed in Jesus for everlasting life, it started to grieve me because I knew it grieved God. It grieved him. And I couldn't stop. And I prayed about it. It would bring me to tears. Then one day I realized I have not swore for quite a while, and God took that away from me. He took it away from me. And he can do that for you if that's a problem in your life. He can take that away from you. Foolish talk is uh, the babbling of a drunken man, if you will. The Greek word is easy to remember, for it's made up of two words, moron and logos. Moron and logos, which means uh, (laughs) morological. That's the idea. It means one who talks like a fool. Foolish talk, it does not have anything to do with intelligence, but it has to do with morals. The word refers to one who makes light of high standards of behavior, thinking that it's somehow funny or sophisticated to tear down anything that is high or praiseworthy or ennobling. I think of our vice president, uh, Vice President Pence, when he said that he would not uh, have dinner with a woman that was not his wife. He would be very careful about his relationship with the opposite sex. And what happened on uh, late night TV and in the news, everybody made fun of him. That was foolish talk to try to tear down somebody's personal convictions about something. And then, of course, jesting. Uh, It refers to word with double meanings. You know, the innuendos that you'll hear, often sexual in conduct, uh, with a double meaning, a sentence that sounds innocent but then causes people to giggle or snigger when they hear it. And so that's, of course, jesting. So what is the... What is the antidote here? Notice in the end of verse 4, but rather the giving of thanks. The giving of thanks. Uh, You know, what is our dialect? The Christian dialect is thankfulness. In all things, we are to be thankful. We are to be thankful that God is the mighty God of the universe. What we are governs how we think, and how we think governs what we do. And then the warning, saints are to avoid these things. And then the wisdom We are to remember the certainty of judgment in verses 5 through 7. Look again at verse 5. This has tripped up many people as they read it. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Uh, There's a little saying that goes like this. Saints go in one direction. Sinners go in another. Saints go to heaven. Sinners go to hell. It's a sad saying, but it is a true saying. This involves ultimate destiny. Uh, two people can go in opposite directions, and they may stop and talk for a while. They may even be good friends and spend time together. In the end, they will be fall apart, far apart. Paul mentions the fate of sinners twice in verses 5 and 6. Remember the certainty of judgment. We know the certainty of, uh, about evildoers. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, In him also, after listening to the message of truth of the gospel of salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your inheritance in heaven is not in jeopardy. Let me make that very clear. Verse 14, he is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of redemption 
of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to clarify things in Corinthians. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified, that means declared righteous, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. He's reminding us of who we used to be or the potential of who we could be. And we don't want to live like those whom God is going to judge. Colossians chapter 3, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you once walked. You were living in them. You know, there's a good practice. If you struggle with issues of sexual immorality, looking at wrong things, dealing with those things, when you get up in the morning, before you get out of that bed, you give every part of your body over to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can start with your toes and your feet. Lord, guide my steps today because he will do it. And guard my eyes and everything else in between. And uh, just it sounds kind of by rote or something, but if it, it helps you, it will help you. Uh, he tells us here and warns us in verse 5 or verse, verse 6, let no one de- deceive you with empty words. Uh, the Nicolaitans were libertines, and they were trying to uh, defeat the Lord Jesus Christ's work in many churches in that day and age. I had a friend when I was in college, and we were uh, what you would call bounders or rounders. We were always in trouble. And uh, he always said that, I know I'm a believer in Jesus, and I may not have any stars in my crown, but I'll be in heaven. And I thought, those are empty words. Uh, Yes, he may believe in Jesus, and yes, he'll be in heaven, but he's missing out on the greatest blessings there are because the wrath of God against the unrighteous is righteous and holy. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul here is talking about the people who do not know Jesus as Savior, those we would call sinners, and that he is going to judge them. Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the warning is, is that therefore, and the wisdom in living out the Christian life is not to be deceived by empty words uh, because we know the sons of disobedience and we know that they are not Christians. He's talking about people who do not know the Savior. Therefore, do not be partakers with them in verse 7. We are not to partake with them. You know, it's easy to get off track in this life, in this world. I remember when I was, uh, I think I was about eight or nine years old, uh, I had to start wearing glasses. I had injured my left eye, and uh, they wanted me to wear spectacles, you know, corrective lenses. And I did need them, and, uh, but I hated wearing them. I hated wearing them. Everybody made fun of me at school and all of that, you know. Uh, but uh, because of that, my mother was trying to cheer me up one day, and she told me she got tickets to the Barnum and Bailey Circus. In downtown Denver, we went to the big auditorium, and there was the circus before that started. We got to see the elephants and the camels and that stuff. And I'm trying to think. I enjoyed that so much. I don't think my sisters got to go. Maybe that's why I enjoyed it so much. It was just my mom and me. And we went down. We got tickets. 
And uh, it, we, I was so excited when the day came and we got down to the, uh, the circus. We found our seats. They, weren't, they were up pretty high. They weren't in the nosebleed section, but they were where you get an oxygen mask. You know, it's that high. But yet I was thrilled, you know, because you could look down on all three rings of the circus. And, uh, but since I had conveniently forgotten to bring my glasses, everything was blurry to me. Everything was blurry. And so all through the performance, I squinted and struggled to see clearly. It was just a fog of bright colors and movement. I missed the details of that great evening. I can still in my mind's eye remember how blurry everything, like if I do this now, you're all blurry. It looks like watercolors out there. So, but without the lens of scripture, without the word of God guiding us and showing us and correcting our vision, our words and our life and our world is just blurry jumble of color without love, direction, or meaning. And a believer can slide off into the world's ways very easily. God speaks clearly through the lens of Scripture. Saints are heaven-bound. Those who don't believe in Jesus Christ are hell-bound. So we're to follow hard after God. This is the application of the great position we have that Paul has detailed for us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. I want, if you've not been there for a while, go back and read chapters 1 through 3 to tell you who you really are. It is a great exercise to remind yourself who you are in Christ. And so we follow after God. And if we are Christ followers, it means we abstain from evil. We are to know the destiny of evildoers and not be deceived by it. And so the question for you today is, are you imitating God? What a challenge, huh? Imitating God, love and forgiveness to one another. Do you practice that forgiveness? Do you demonstrate self-sacrificial kind of love? That's what he's talking about. When Jesus died on the cross for you and I, it was a sacrifice, wasn't it? And it's easy to love people we like. It's difficult to love people that we struggle with to be around, isn't it? Uh, there was a pastor friend of mine who uh, he said, Gary, you just got to love them in Jesus, you know, love people in Jesus. And there is a truth to that. And so do you demonstrate that self-sacrificial kind of love? Can you be labeled as an immoral person? I mean, sadly, as I mentioned, these major ministries, major figures in evangelicalism, I cannot imagine what their churches and their ministries are going through right now. Is there anything coming between you and God? Perhaps you are not of the faith. You've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. Today can be the day of your salvation. For God so loves you that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And so we need to make up our mind. Many years ago, there was a TV preacher who always was talking about these words. He said, and I'm quoting him, if you're going to be a Christian, be one. (laughs) Seems simple, doesn't it? And yet, I think it's very, very true. If you're going to be a Christian, be one. It's a wise statement. Love like a Christian, live like one, talk like one, walk like one. Put on the Christian uniform. The Apostle Paul talks about that earlier in this passage, also in Colossians, about putting on the righteousness that Christ has provided us. If you're going to play on Team Jesus, as one person said, then put on the Christian uniform in every part of your life. When we moved from Dallas to the upper Midwest, to the state of Wisconsin, right after seminary, I had been a lifelong Dallas Cowboys fan. 
you know, Roger Staubach and all those guys. Did I hear somebody booing out there? So, I heard that. But, but I moved, if you go to Wisconsin, you better be a Green Bay Packers fan. And so we had good friends who would invite us over to watch the game. And that one year, uh, the Cowboys were in Green Bay playing the Green Bay Packers. So I, I developed a T-shirt which had half of the, the Packers logo, you know, the big G, and the other half, the Cowboys star. And then underneath it, I had cow pack, you know, cow pack. <laughs> My friends didn't think that was funny. <laughs> it's very difficult to play on two teams or to be a fan of two teams. So make up your mind. You can be for Jesus or you can be for the world, but you can't really do both at the same time. There's another reason we ought to take this to heart. Sinners, unbelievers, have no hope unless the saints live, or the saints live like saints. If sinners look at us and can't tell the difference, how will they ever want what we have, even believe that there is a difference? That's what grieves the heart of God is when these ministries I've mentioned, when an unbeliever looks at that guy and that team and says, oh, they're just like the rest of them. They're just hypocrites and ridiculous. We are sinners who God turned into saints through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all we have is the gift of grace and merited favor. And that's the exact point we need to convey. That's the best news anybody in this world will ever hear. If God can do that for you and I, he can take people we know, people perhaps in your family, your school, your workplace, uh, this community, he can take them and save them too. He can make them saints set apart for his glory. Ruth Bell Graham defined a saint as someone who makes it easy to believe in Jesus. I love that. Someone who makes it easy to believe in Jesus. Let all the saints remember who they are and live like the holy people of God. Remember your family name. Remember who saved you. Remember who you were in Christ, before, without Christ, before he found you. Remember what great things the Lord has done for you. Remember who you are and live like it. Make it easy for others to believe in Jesus. Then sinners will know that being a saint is truly wonderful thing. Perhaps they too will taste and see that the Lord is good. This brings me back to full circle to the babies talking like their mothers or having the accent. What song do we overhear from heaven that we try to sing here on earth as believers in Christ? We don't sing it perfectly, don't get me wrong. Our squalling and squawking, we sing it instinctually. It's in the bones of every believer. And what is that music of heaven? It's the voice of the Father in our hearts. In the least muffled form, every Christian can convey it, that beautiful aroma of Christ. What is your accent? What is your language? And if it's the music of heaven, it's got to be love. When we love, no matter how awkwardly we hum an anthem, sung perfectly, it is sung perfectly every day in heaven, all day every day, and he wants to sing it through your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your